0: Welcome to The Deciders. This is Renee Fraser, the founder and CEO of Fraser Communications. We're the leading woman-owned and woman-led advertising firm in Southern California. We specialize in changing behavior, growing brands, and having a positive impact on society. At Fraser, we're well-known for our advertising and public relations work for awareness around COVID-19 and the vaccine in L.A. County, as well as our statewide campaign Talk, read, sing, it changes everything. The campaign funded by Tobacco Taxes and First Five California with uh, 87% awareness across the state, encouraging families to do just those activities and grow their children's brains. But on The Deciders, I feature leaders in their fields and change agents, people who can help us learn about what's going on in the community and how does that impact our businesses. We have people share their stories and their knowledge. Today in California, we're experiencing the second time in recent history where there's been an effort to recall the governor. In 2003, then Governor Gray Davis was recalled. He was only the second governor to be recalled in U.S. history. Now there is an effort to recall current California Governor Gavin Newsom. To explore this and other California political topics, we'll be talking with Dan Schnur. Dan is a professor at USC's Annenberg School of Communications, Leadership and Policy and professor of UC Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies. He has many political accomplishments, including initiating Fixing California aimed at campaign finance and political reform. Dan Schner, welcome
1: to The Deciders. Thanks so much for having me, Renee. I really appreciate it.
0: Happy to have you here. And this is going to be an interesting conversation. It always is. Let's begin with the campaign to recall Gavin Newsom. What's the likelihood of this happening?
1: At this point, it's pretty slim, Renee. One of the challenges of being an elected official, particularly in an executive position, a governor, a mayor or a president, is you get way too much blame than you deserve when things are going bad. and You get way too much credit Uh when things are going well. So last spring, last winter and last spring, when it looked like the pandemic was really overtaking California, Newsom, as the person in charge, was being blamed by most voters and it provided an immense amount of fuel that allowed the recall to qualify. Now, here's it, here we are a few months later. Uh, the pandemic is certainly not gone, but is subsiding. And whether Newsom deserves the blame or not, whether he deserves the credit or not, is in the eye of the beholder. But the end result is that while a recall is not impossible, it's going to be a lot more difficult when Californians are happy with the way their world is going than when they're than when they're mad.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. I think you know the state of the economy is usually one of the best predictors, right, of how successful uh, an election will be if the person's the incumbent and. I think you're right. He's certainly made change happen. It also helps that there's a surplus in the state of California. Seventy six billion dollars, as I understand. Uh, In terms of the actual recall, uh, do you see any strong Republican candidates uh, throwing their hat in the ring?
1: Well, there are there are four prominent Republican candidates. So I'll I'll adjust the the adjective from from strong to to prominent. And the four, at least to date, that have gotten the most attention are John Cox, the businessman who ran unsuccessfully against Newsom in twenty eighteen. Doug Osi, the former Republican congressman from the Sacramento area, Kevin Faulkner, the former mayor of San Diego and Caitlyn Jenner, the former Bruce Jenner and reality show star and Olympic decathlete. At this point, uh, Faulkner, the former mayor of San Diego, is running what I would call the most conventional Republican campaign, conventional in the pre Trump sense. He's talking about tax cuts, he's talking about public safety, he's talking about school choice, talking about all the things that Republicans have talked about in California and elsewhere over the years. And I think, at least right now, partially because uh, Caitlyn Jenner is a, uh, receiving so much media attention. And partially because the voters are focused more on the post-COVID reopening than they are on the recall campaign. Falkner's not getting a lot of attention. Uh, John Cox you know, is the type of candidate who historically has appealed to a more grassroots Trump voter. But right now, voters care much more about the pandemic than they do about politics. And that more than anything is what's working to Newsom's benefit.
0: Well, it's interesting. It'll be it'll be useful to watch. I think uh As a skeptic, I've been watching and I think Newsom is doing his very best to make sure he builds confidence with key segments in the population. Uh, And obviously, as he tries to open the economy more, he's uh, very mindful of which groups will be able to come back to work. It looks like they're even going to look at OSHA regulations, not just uh, public health regulations. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Well, things are definitely trending in Newsom's favor as the reopening progresses, there have been some bumps along the road. And one of them um, has been as the state has been preparing for June 15th reopening there has been a lot more confusion about what the rules will be in workplaces, in stores and businesses and factories and so on. And Newsom finally had to step in and make some sense of this. Yes. because there's been so much confusion about whether employees would have to wear masks in the workplace. But it looks like what they finally resolved is that employees like customers will only have to wear a mask if they're not vaccinated. And so once again, things to be seem to be heading pretty far in the right, pretty well in the right direction. The one thing that might be worth paying attention to here, Renee, while Newsom does look like he has this pretty well in hand, is not how the recall will come out, but when it will take place. Hmm. The original thought is most California Democrats thought over the winter that the longer they were able to delay the recall, the more likely a post pandemic recovery would come and the better that would be uh, for Newsom. But because things have progressed so quickly, they're now trying to move the recall up. And while as it originally looked like it might be in November or December, it now looks like they're trying to push it to early September or even August. Oh, my. The thought being, that as the wildfire season kicks in later in the year, as the potential for rolling blackouts comes out and as the potential for a COVID resurgence comes later in the fall, when the weather gets cold, their thought is, let's get this done as quickly as we can before anything bad can happen and uh, and, and, and flip the voters back.
0: It makes uh, good sense. And thank you for bringing that up. I think while the economy is strong and before we hit that cold weather, Because you're absolutely right. You know, we work with the Department of Public Health in L.A., and there is a concern there'll be a a small surge in September, October if we don't get everyone vaccinated. Uh, That brings us to the other subject of incentivization, right? And we know from the public health work that we've done, incentives do work to get people to change their mind. But what do you think of the governor's incentives, uh, the aggressive nature and the sizable nature of those incentives?
1: Well, there's, as you know, Renee, and you just alluded to it, there's been a considerable amount of academic research done on the best way to get people to do something they're not inclined to do, whether it's vaccines, whether it's recycling, whatever it happens to be. And the research generally shows that the carrot works better than the stick. Right. And when you try to shame people, when you try to force them into doing something, they push back and not only Governor Newsom, but governors in many states around the country saw that pushback earlier this year, um, when COVID was at its worst. But as the, but as uh, but as we're heading you know, out of the worst out of the worst of the situation, Newsom has adopted much more of an encouraging and an incentivized tone. The lotteries, the vacations. There are times when he looks a little bit like more like a game show than a governor.
0: <laughs> but
1: you can't argue with the results. And since Newsom began offering these fairly lucrative incentives to Californians to get vaccinated, there is statistical evidence that the numbers are heading in the right direction. So whether it's gubernatorial behavior or not, probably depends more on your partisan voter registration than anything else. But the bottom line is more people are getting vaccinated and the job ahead, particularly in rural communities, particularly in minority urban Communities, We need to do a much better job of accelerating the effort, but it's heading in the right direction. Yes, and we're
0: excited to see that. We've been working on that with L.A. County, uh, a number of incentives around sports. In L.A. County, it's younger people, particularly young men, that are have been showing the greatest level of reluctance to get vaccinated. But you're right, statewide, it's definitely the rural areas. I, I'm, I think you're right. The numbers are heading in the right direction. And we just. Oh. Get that 70, 75% number, which we're
1: striving for. In the in in the the demographic uh, breakdown that you mentioned, Renee, is a really important one. I was a young man once, albeit a long, long time ago. (laughs) And back when I was a young man, I thought that I was invulnerable. Mm -hmm. And it's a natural condition of youth that you don't think of yourselves as having to worry about these types of things. Right. And particularly in underrepresented communities there really has been a skew and going forward, finding athletes, finding entertainers, finding community leaders who are willing to stand up along with the more traditional political leaders and medical practitioners might be the key to getting over that next hump.
0: Yes, we're doing a lot with influencers and social media and uh, exactly that. in those of the sports and entertainers. Let's just let's turn the uh, the focus on Los Angeles and our mayor, Mayor Garcetti there's uh, certainly a lot of talk about Garcetti being appointed ambassador to India and leaving Los Angeles. What do you think about that?
1: Well, the the appointment hasn't been made yet, but as you know, from watching politics over the course of your career, Renee, the amount of energy that Garcetti's people are not expending to push back against the rumor means that it's probably pretty much of a done deal. And although uh, if, even if Biden were to announce the mayor very quickly, there's a fairly extended, sometimes several months long confirmation process in the United States Senate. But it is looking more and more likely that at some time before the end of this year, the mayor will depart, uh, leaving at least a temporary vacancy in his office. Now, as you and most of your audience knows, the way Los Angeles works is the president of the city council under those types of circumstances, in this case, council president Noreen Martinez would step in as mayor. But Martinez is one of four members of the council who are planning on running for mayor next year to replace Garcetti. Mm-hmm. And my guess is there's going to be a considerable amount of intrigue into as to whether those other council members, Mark Ridley Thomas, Kevin DeLeon and Joe Biscaino are willing to stand by and let Noreen Martinez become the incumbent mayor, given the advantage that would provide her in a campaign for a full four year term in twenty twenty two. So if if Garcetti is appointed and if he is confirmed, there's going to be a lot of sharp elbows flying around city council chambers between now and the time this gets resolved.
0: Yes, we've been watching the four of those folks uh, uh, gain spotlight and increase their visibility on various issues uh, one of those issues rightfully so uh, is homelessness and uh, what solutions we can be can be brought to bear on, on homelessness We know that uh, we all voted for H and hhh there are a lot of resources and unfortunately there are more people falling into homelessness and living without their homes than ever before as a result of the pandemic. And Garcetti just hasn't seemed to be able to keep up with what what needs what needs to happen in the solutions. What's your perspective on the homelessness issue? And I know Garcetti wanted to make that his centerpiece, but he certainly has not succeeded in
1: making that a positive story. Well, uh, Mayor Garcetti makes a plausible case that the reasons for the explosion in homelessness here have as much to do with state and national public policy as 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 local. That said, as we were talking about a little bit earlier in the context of Newsom and coronavirus, when you're the person in charge, you get way too much credit when things are good and way too much blame when it's bad. So people can decide for themselves whether it's fair or not. But this is a crisis that's landed in and stayed in Garcetti's lap. What's most interesting to me about how the homelessness issue plays in this race, Renee, though, is it seems that voters have just become exhausted by the issue, and I say this not particularly charitably. But the biggest difference that's occurred over the last few years is it's gone from a problem that most Angelinos knew about to a problem that they see every day. It's so close to home now. It's in so many neighborhoods, right? Precisely. And Busca- Joe Buscaino, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. who represents the South Bay in in the in the council, he's a former police officer, and he's staked out what a couple of years ago might have looked like an unacceptably conservative position on these issues. But as voters become more and more fatigued, it's worth wondering whether he might be able to establish some advantage for himself in this race by coming out with a much more aggressive approach on the issue than uh, a more traditionally progressive candidate might. It's instructive that while there's no shortage of worst spots, Skid Row, Echo Park. But we've watched we've watched the flare ups in Venice. and The council member there, Mike Bonin, who's now under the threat of recall yes. himself, <laughs> in the eyes of many community activists, has not been as forceful as they would have liked on the issue. Joe Biscaino, whose district is a long way from Venice Beach, has swooped in and made it clear that he has a very aggressive plan for addressing the issue. And as a result, he's gained some visibility that, like I said, a minute ago, could give him some advantage in this race. It'll be interesting in watching how more progressive candidates like De Leon and Ridley Thomas and Martinez try to push back at him on this, given where the voter psyche is.
0: That's a really good point. You know, when people are running for election, they modify their points of view and uh, at least and the and the. Uh, Level of with which they speak about the volume, the amount they speak about issues, in order to cater to those audiences, so they do adjust as as we move into an election year. I think we're also going to go through reapportionment as a result of the census, and I think the West Side that Sheila Kuehl has had is uh, on the supervisor side, who's going to be making some changes, which also means there's some uh, maneuvering. Is that right?
1: Well, that's exactly right. In the campaign for Sheila Kuehl's supervisorial seat could end up being just as interesting and just as fierce as the campaign for mayor. Uh, City controller Ron Galpern uh, has decided to run for that supervisorial seat. The mayor of West Hollywood, Lindsey Horvath, is now running for that supervisorial position, running very, very aggressively. And Richard Bloom, the assembly member uh, from Santa Monica, now has let it be known that depending on how the district is drawn, He may run also because that reapportionment is taking place. As you mentioned, Renee, we don't quite know what the districts are going to look like. Mm -hmm. And there have been politicians in the past who've actually moved into a district in order to run. Richard Bloom, to his credit, has said, you know what? If I don't live in the district once it's configured, I'm not going to move just to run. But assuming Santa Monica does end up does end up there, I think a three way race between Bloom and Galpern and and Horvath could be fascinating to watch.
0: I agree with you. I know all three of those folks. And, uh, you know, Richard Bloom was mayor of Santa Monica, as you well know, and did a lot of good work here. And I agree with you. I think it shows a lot of integrity to say if that's not included in the area, I'm not going to move I He's, you know, through and through a a Santa Monica person. And and he's accomplished a lot in the assembly as well. It's interesting to watch politicians move from seat to seat to seat uh, and and know that they're just, you know, moving for power. I guess what I believe is what did they accomplish? What did they say they were going to do and what did they do? What what criteria do you recommend people use to evaluate these candidates?
1: I, I think you're exactly right on this one, Renee. Look, biography is destiny and what a man or woman has accomplished in their past is the single greatest indicator on what they'll prioritize in the future. And I'll say this about the supervisorial grace, because like you, I know all three of them is often when we go to vote in Los Angeles and elsewhere in the state and around the country, we think, oh, my gosh, what a bunch of clowns. Who in the world am I going to vote for in this campaign? I think it's the exact opposite challenge. You got three really impressive public servants. Richard Bloom, Ron and Lindsay Horvath, who have all done some really admirable work in office. Uh, it'll be one of those rare instances where, where we have an embarrassment of, of riches, and I wouldn't begin to try to handicap that race right now.
0: I get it. Believe me. We'll, we'll watch how it how this moves forward. Uh, Lindsay also worked under Shula as I believe, right, and on her staff, so she has that experience as well, uh, which is great in terms of knowing the issues. But they're both. They're all three strong candidates. Let me ask us to shift, uh, uh, Dan, and let's talk about the national political situation. What's your assessment of Biden, how well he's getting things done? This show is being recorded just before he has his conversation with Putin, the meeting with Putin. Uh, But looking at the national perspective and the uh, American Rescue Act, uh, the other things he has going through Congress. Tell us what your perspective is.
1: I think Biden was able to get off to a very strong start simply because so many voters were so fatigued by Donald Trump's presidency. Now, it's worth remembering that this was a very close election. And uh, and there is a very, very sizable plurality of voters who supported Donald Trump and who still do. But that said, the swing voters who tend to decide these elections, while they were very supportive of what Trump had done, in terms of the economy were very, very critical in the way you'd handle the pandemic and the the coronavirus. And so for Biden's first 100 days, being able to emphasize the pandemic and the post-COVID recovery uh, in the passage of the Recovery Act and on other fronts, simply not being Trump was good enough for him. So now that that's done, Biden hits a more challenging stretch of road uh, Trump is not as evident in the news media and in the public eye as he was at the very beginning of Biden's term. And while on one hand, that uh, removes Biden's loudest potential critic from the discussion, what it also does is it deprives Biden of a unifying force. There's a lot of ideological space in the Democratic Party between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Diane Feinstein. Yes. Between Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin. And the one thing that unified the Democratic Party all through the election and beyond was a distaste and antipathy for Donald Trump. Trump may or may not run in twenty twenty four, who knows and who would be foolish enough to guess at this point. But right now, he's maintaining a fairly low profile. And I don't know that that helps Biden, because the best way for him to bring his party together is to remind them of what that unifies of what unifies them. And when Trump is not highly visible, the differences emerge. Uh, Biden has a tremendous challenge ahead of him on the infrastructure legislation that he's been pushing, both from Republicans and from Democrats and the same dynamic he faces on any number of other issues, criminal justice reform, voting reform, climate change. On one hand, he has Republicans who are very resistant. But on the other hand, he's had a real challenge in unifying the Democratic Party behind a lot of his policy goals, too. So good start. But now he's hitting the more challenging waters. We'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, I agree with you that, uh, you know, he no longer has that, uh, you know, unifying enemy. But on the other hand, that's forced him and the Democrats in Congress to be substantive, right, to be able to bring issues to the fore Uh, And we know that there's uh, support on on both on the Republican and the Democrat side for infrastructure. It's very obvious that we need this in the United States. It's really a matter of how we come to that. Uh, Do you think there will be a, a, a bridge that's created in the divide in Congress over infrastructure and job creation or in on any other subject?
1: It looks like Biden's infrastructure package is being divided into two different pieces one a more traditional physical infrastructure package. And it's what we've always thought about when we use that term roads, bridges here in the 21st century broadband. And then there is what Biden calls social infrastructure, more investment in health care, child care, senior care and so on. And there are very, very heated conversations going on about potential bipartisan support on that physical infrastructure package. It's probably not going to be as large as Biden wanted, but it looks like the centrists in both parties are having fairly productive conversations. If Biden wants to get that social infrastructure package through, that's probably going to have to be on a party line vote, which means his biggest challenge isn't Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, but rather the most centrist of Democrats.
0: That makes sense. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the social infrastructure doing the work with First Five California I've come to realize the importance of child care and the role women play as care providers. And I think that was made very clear during the pandemic. So making sure those folks get paid adequately, that there is paid family leave, there is equitable pay for people who do that hard work for senior care and for child care makes a lot of sense to me. But I understand I also pay taxes. So we have to look at how we pay for those things. Uh, but I, I'm glad to see that uh, the Biden has taken both issues on. I give him credit for that uh, and and also for being what they call boring. <laughs> he doesn't get quite as much attention as as President Trump did. And and that's because he's hard at work. At least that's my impression. What about you? I think that
1: I think that makes some sense. You know, Biden, of course, ran last year is a very centrist establishment candidate. And as the pandemic worsened and as the public appetite at least potentially grew for more aggressive government, at some point between Election Day and Inauguration Day, he found his internal Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> we'll see if he can. Uh, we'll see if he can carry that across the uh, across the finish line with, in fairness to Biden, much smaller majorities. Yes. Than either Roosevelt or Johnson did when they were president. Yes. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you, Dan. This has been very edifying and, and, and uh, spurred me on to do more thinking. Thank you so much. Thank you all for spending time with us on The Deciders and with Dan Schner, professor as well as political consultant. We truly appreciate you listening to these shows and thinking and reflecting as we talk about the issues of our day. You can hear our podcast anytime on our website at com. Frazier is a full-service advertising communications firm. You can find out more about us at fraziercommunications.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week here on The Deciders with Renee Fraser. Have a wonderful week ahead. Stay safe and stay well.